and welcome to the Securities Compliance Podcast, where it is our mission to help you put compliance in context. For those that tuned in to our first episode featuring Natasha Greiner, thank you so much for taking the time to join us again. For those that are new to our club, welcome. We are so glad to have you with us. Let's dive right into some headlines. On the rules and regs front, there's a couple items regarding whistleblower statutes that I think would be really, really beneficial to take a look at. First, in August of this year, the North American Securities Administrators Association published a model whistleblower statute for the states. In general, it appeared relatively similar to the regime of the SEC, and typically these model statutes are ultimately adopted by the states. So what's the real practical significance here? Number one, there's going to be some whistleblowers who don't just file with the SEC, but will ultimately look to awards from the state as well. And two, this is the big one, I think the anti-retaliation protections will often be triggered by these state statutes. So consequently, you could have some whistleblowers that may receive protections under state law where they may not have been afforded protections under federal law. And in general, this is going to make the entire whistleblower program, which is already a bit controversial, more on that here shortly, even more so because of the additional rewards that might be involved, the discrepancies in state law versus federal law, etc., etc. The other big item on the whistleblower front is that in late September, the SEC adopted some modest changes to their whistleblower statute. It's interesting. These amendments were pretty controversial. I think that might have been partially because in some of the proposed amendments, um, they included putting some caps on some of the more giant awards provided whistleblowers. And, you know, these are the ones that are the 20, 30, 40 million dollars that go directly to one person. Ultimately, those amendments were excluded. Instead, they approved some uh, more modest amendments that would allow for expedited review of awards of $5 million or less. So there might be some little awards to get processed more quickly. Uh, two, they uh, clarified um, that the form of the action, whether it's a settlement agreement, deferred prosecution agreement, non-prosecution agreement, none of that will affect whether the action is a covered action or a related action. Um, they also talked about how regardless of whether another regulatory regime uh, has has a whistleblower award, that award will not be counted or affect the award the SEC may ultimately provide the whistleblower. Um, they also uh, reiterated or confirmed a decision from last year's U.S. Supreme Court in the Digital Realty Trust versus Summers case where Again, the definition of a whistleblower must be someone who reports to the commission. It cannot just be a a result of internal reporting. They also talked about how there may be new ways to, or included in the amendments, new ways to exclude frivolous and or spurious claims. Um, And finally, they also clarified that uh, independent analysis includes certain things that may not be available in public sources. So if there are novel or nuanced insights that might be the result of a private study, those may be counted for as part of the whistleblower awards. Um, on the whole, the amendments seem rather modest, um, but there were a couple related items in particular that caught my eye, especially when considered in combination with the NASAA release. First, the amendments the, the amendments that were ultimately adopted did not contain any language that could cap the ultimate reward the ultimate award received. 
Second, the amendment specifically stated that whistleblower awards from the SEC will not be affected by whistleblower awards from other regulatory regimes. While I certainly want good behavior to be incentivized and rewarded, I also share a healthy skepticism that with so much money at stake now from multiple regimes, the states and the SEC, the NASAA model rule compounded with these recent amendments could lead to an influx in false positives. On the enforcement side of the House, in some recent speeches at the Institute for Law and Economics at the University of Penn Law School, both Chair Clayton and Director of Enforcement Stephanie Avakian discussed the highlights of the division over the last three years. In particular, Ms. Avakian noted the wide variety of cases brought by the division, covering not just those traditional issues like Ponzi schemes, financial fraud, misleading financial reporting, market participant misconduct, insider trading, etc., but also some of the more nuanced or novel issues relating to, say, initial coin offerings. Ms. Avakian also stressed the SEC's continued focus on large public companies and financial institutions, and she also dropped some pretty big numbers. Uh, in the last three years, the division brought over 2,500 enforcement actions, received $14 billion in financial remedies, returned over $3.3 billion to harmed retail investors, and distributed more than $350 million in whistleblower awards during the tenure of Chair, of Chair Clayton. One more thought-provoking item from Ms. Avakian's comments was her related statements addressing the SEC's approach to civil money penalties under the framework provided by the U.S. Supreme Court in lieu. It seems somewhat apparent at this point that the SEC is going to seek higher penalties in cases wherever it is permitted to do so in order to help make up for some of the limitations on disgorgement as set out in the Lou case. And this feels pretty consistent, I think, when you especially consider insider trading settlements uh, where the SEC has settled cases without any disgorgement but has demanded the defendants pay, say, two times whatever they made in earned profits. The net result is that the defendants end up paying about the same amount in financial remedies despite having to pay nothing on the disgorgement. So while companies and individuals that may be facing SEC enforcement should absolutely push aggressively and argue for the limits to any potential disgorgement that is consistent under lieu, I think you've got to also expect that the SEC is going to themselves push very hard and demand higher penalties in response. As we move into the interview portion of the show, one of the biggest topics that's affecting the investment management space right now is the newest release of the Department of Labor's fiduciary rule. And I am incredibly pleased to welcome here today both an expert in the employee benefits and financial services sectors, Mr. David Kaleda. David is a principal at the Groom Law Group, where his broad range of experience includes handling fiduciary matters that are impacting plan sponsors, investment in other fiduciary committees, investment managers and advisors, record keepers, broker dealers, banks, and other financial services firms. David joined the Groom Law Group in February of 2013, while he was also serving as an issue chair on the DOL's Risk Advisory Council. Welcome to the show, Mr. David Kaleda. Thank you. Happy to be here. So I think one thing that uh, would probably be really beneficial for our audience, especially, you know, I'm sure many people listening to this podcast have seen the release and, and you know, um, obviously just came out relatively recently, but would love to get kind of your initial thoughts on 
the rule itself and maybe, you know, one of the things that really or one or two things that really struck you uh, as being significant as, as part of the release? I think there are a couple of things. It's twofold. One is I, I think with the department with it, uh, what they're trying to accomplish is or to give an opportunity for firms that thought that maybe they were providing advice. So back when the old DOL rule, when they tried to pass that, you know, we really started looking at our day-to-day -day interactions with clients. And some firms, I think, felt, well, maybe we are, even under the five-part test, acting as a fiduciary. Or at that point, they said, we're just going to be a fiduciary. We're okay with that and didn't really want to walk it back. And then I think there's also a school of thought that, well, if I comply with Reg BI, do I somehow then become a fiduciary under this five-part test that's been around forever? So we need exemptive relief so we can have get things like commissions, you know, third-party payments from mutual funds, things like that. So I think the DOL, in response to that, came up with this exemption. Mm -hmm. So that's point one. But point two, and I think is frankly probably the more intriguing or interesting thing about this, you know, again, this isn't a regulation, it's an exemption. Right. But within that exemption, we have a preamble. And in that preamble, the department suggests that it's going to change its views or has changed its views, depending on how you read it, on when a person acts as a fiduciary for purposes of an investment advice. So in other words, they're not changing the five-part test, the words of it, but they are changing or telling us their view of it is different than what it's been since like 1975. <laughs> right. It's been, it's been one way for a little bit of time. And now we're dramatically, and for, from what I'm hearing from you, I think, really, they, they broadened it quite a bit, right? Uh, uh, for what they consider to be investment advice. Yes. So in a couple of key areas, one is well, there's one is is that there's this thing called the five part test, which we know is this 1975 regulation, and again there there was an attempt to change that, but that is the law right now. Um, and if you read through or parse through it, it's pretty easy to get to a point where you could say I'm not providing investment advice, you know, in a transactional type of relationship. Um, sure, sure. Whether it's brokerage or insurance. Um, and the other thing was is there was DOL guidance where it's called the Deseret Letter, which is an advisory opinion issued by the department back in 05, where they basically said that as long as you're not a fiduciary to a plan already, if you recommend somebody to take a, re recommend somebody to take a rollover distrib and distribution and rollover to an IRA, that was not investment advice because it wasn't a recommendation to sell securities as contemplated by the department under its regulation at the time. So, um, basically, a lot of firms could say, we're just under this Deseret letter, we're not even meeting part one of the five part test, which is making a securities recommendation. Got it. Um, so, you know, what the department really is trying to do now is say, one, rollover recommendation does meet part one if you do, in fact, make a recommendation. So if the other four parts kick in, then that would be investment advice. And then they're also interpreting those other four parts in a much broader way or in a much different way than we would have thought they did. They've never really issued guidance on this. Um, I suppose there was some foreshadowing with their attempt to change the rule right. back a few years ago. But right. I think, you know, this is, it's, it's just very different than we ever thought. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's interesting. And I definitely see when you say that they're broadening it, what they're doing is they're really kind of changing 
the landscape in which probably many other advisors previously approached whether or not the rule even applied to them just by that very first step. So that 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 seems yeah that that's really interesting. Well, okay, so that gives us some good context into kind of some of the um, specific things that stuck out to you and changes in in the rule. Um, you know, h- how do you see that playing out? I mean, obviously we're you know we're still in the proposal phase right now. Um, so I guess a question that probably many compliance officers across the country are asking are like, hey, you know, what, what, what state am I in right now? What, what rules should I abide by? And, you know, when do you see the proposal potentially becoming effective? You know, that's a challenging question, particularly with regard to this definition of fiduciary. Because, again, as you noted, this is an exemption and it's a proposed exemption. Thus, it's not final. And technically, in, until it's final, it doesn't apply. But the the question remains is by putting this language in the preamble, which says, oh, we've changed our minds and we're revoking the Deseret letter and we're looking at this more broadly. Theoretically, that should apply right now. It's just their state of mind. It's not the thing that's being subject to a comment, which are the exemption requirements. Um, Right, right. Exactly. Yeah. So it's... um, that has left a lot of us confused a little bit about, or what do we do now? Like, should we just assume worst case and we're fiduciaries? We should, or at least we should apply this broader interpretation or not. I would say it hasn't been out long enough where people, people have decided to go that route unless they were headed in that direction already. Hopefully the DOL, whether the exemption is finalized or not, will give us a sense of where they are on that interpretation regardless. Mm-hmm. But, you know, so I think that remains to be seen. It would not be a good thing necessarily if, if those definitions apply now, because the exemptive relief here is, is somewhat unique compared to other exemptive relief the DOL right. has. And it might be hard to be a fiduciary and try to use the exemptions that exist today to make all this work. This proposed one, while it's not perfect by any means, there is more of an avenue to compliance than there is with the exemptions that exist today. Right. That, that's an interesting point that you bring up because what I, one of the things that struck me um, as you were talking is, you know, do they as part of this, like essentially is what they published recently a signal, right, of like what's to come kind of a situation? And then the, the ultimate hope is that then, you know, they would issue an exemption and then hopefully, to your point, give people – a little bit better roadmap for what they might need to do in order to avoid the conflict. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And and I think, um, you know, as I noted, the exemption, it does attempt to do that, assuming it does become final, but it's not perfect. I think there's good and bad in it. I think the one thing I noted is there seems to be a genuine attempt to sync this with Reg BI um, to at least with the standard of conduct that the best interest standard within this exemption is articulated the same way. Mm-hmm. For instance, you know, you don't see this private right of action issue, you know, in this new exemption. But, you know, I'm not sure everybody would agree that this is a perfect exemption by any means. I think <laughs> right. a lot right. of us thought it would maybe have a standard of conduct and some other disclosure requirements that looked a lot like Reg BI. But you know, there are some annual certification requirements that have to be signed off by a CEO of the firm and some other things. You have to disclose you're a fiduciary 
which can get tricky in this business because sometimes you are a fiduciary, sometimes you're not. And, you know, that kind of puts you at a disadvantage by having to put that out there up front, you mm -hmm. know, other things. So it's, it would be, if the deal especially is going down this route of viewing more folks as fiduciaries, I think this exemption is better than nothing, but there's room for improvement. And, you know, the, the comments that they've gotten both in writing as well as at their hearing were, designed to make them aware of that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. One, one of the things that you just brought up and that certainly I imagine many compliance officers and legal practitioners across the country are struggling with is how, you know, the kind of fiduciary liability that could then attach even before a contract has been signed in some instances, right? Or before someone has made a move, right? If you're doing the rollover recommendation, you know, there now the, the client is going to have some legal rights that maybe they might not ever have in some other industry, like, you know, banking or something like that. I don't know. Is that? Absolutely. That's, that's very true. I mean, I, I think, well, I mentioned before, there's no private right of action here. I mean, that's helpful for the day-to-day -day investment recommendations made within an IRA, for instance, an IRA or an HSA, which are subject to these prohibited transaction rules. But for folks that make recommendations either to an, to a, an account holder within a risk of government plan, like a DC plan, a 401k plan, mm -hmm. um, or making a recommendation to a participant in that plan to take money out of that ERISA government plan and roll it to an IRA, um, when you're you're acting as a fiduciary with regard um, to that recommendation, not the whole plan necessarily, but with regard to that participant in that plan. So then the ERISA liability provisions and enforcement provisions kick in. So, and then you have things like an action that you can bring in federal court for breach of fiduciary duty, prohibited transactions, get damages, things Got like it. that. Got it, so, yeah. You know, I think people need to remember that, you know, if you're making rollover recommendations, which a lot of firms rely on to get assets in the door, um, you know, the the idea of an ERISA lawsuit is still there. It's not that folks will be able to completely avoid, you know, again, potentially having the plaintiff's bar, you know, have an impact in this space. I guess that, that also begs the question, do you see there being, you know, class actions? In this space, do you see that starting to develop at all? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think, needless to say, that class action lawyers are only interested if they can create a class, right? Because that's where they get the most money out of out of the suit. That's their goal to get more more money, more fees. So they're only interested in class actions. Class actions require a commonality amongst the activity with each and every participant in these plans. That might be hard to prove in a rollover recommendation environment because everybody's situation is very different. There should be, you would think, some level of individualized recommendations and determinations and analysis. So it might be hard to, to, to develop a class type strategy. I, um, I wouldn't say it's impossible. You know, if a firm was completely, had completely poor procedures or didn't have procedures, I could see someone trying to make that as a basis for a class. Um, but I could see it being kind of challenging. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. So I, I think I'm, I think I see what you're saying that again, there's going to be a lot of distinct challenges to 
building a class unless you are able to find right some kind of systemic problem internally at probably a larger broker dealer or dual registrant where then they would say well this procedure was bad or this disclosure was bad and so it applies to that entire group of investors that maybe that say disclosure got sent to yeah i i think maybe that that would be that would seem to be the hook and i still think it's you know that would get tested um, <laughs> right and i could see us on the defense side right that apart is pretty well but yeah that's their best chance so I need you to be a little bit of a, a soothsayer here, David. One of the things maybe that I think would be beneficial for, for our listeners, you know, stick your, your thumb to the wind right now. T- tell us a little bit, you know, where you think this shakes out as far as both the proposal and then m- maybe, you know, the second thing that would be, I think, beneficial is if you had to identify one or two you know, critical things that compliance officers and legal practitioners could start doing inside their firms to prepare uh, for whatever ultimately comes down the pike, what would that be? So this will be a particularly difficult year to make these kinds of predictions, not that they're ever easy, because it's always tough to anticipate what the government's going to do. But in an election year, it gets that much more challenging. And we're really getting tight on time here for things to happen, it's particularly if there's a change in administration. Um, but that said, you know, I think the DOL genuinely believes that this is going to be a helpful exemption. They think they're headed in the right direction with regard to aligning with um, the uh, SEC's efforts and, and et cetera, maybe some other regulators, state regulators, et cetera. So um, I think there is an interest in getting this out. I'm not sure how open they are to making substantial changes to the requirements that they've already laid out particularly some of the ones that people have a problem with, but I guess we'll see. Right. Um, you know, I, I think it's it's certainly if this, if there is no change in administration, you should expect to see something, if not by the end of the year, certainly early next year. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, if there's a change in administration, who knows? You know, you, you know I, I could see a different DOL, meaning someone else running it, having liking the direction this is going in, but willing to interpret this more broadly, meaning the definition of investment advice and, you know, changing some of the conditions and things like that. So we would get something, but it might get altered um, from what we see today. That all said, I I think just from a compliance officer, you know, establishing your compliance apparatus and trying to plan ahead and budget and things, I think you need to assume worst case that something like this will come down. Um, I think there's a decent chance that the DOL is going to stick to this. We have a broader interpretation idea of what is fiduciary investment advice. Um, So I think you need to at least understand what they're asking you to do and how this is going to impact your business, particularly on the rollover side, but also just your recommendations regard to IRAs and other kinds of accounts subjects to these rules that are usually, most firms call them qualified accounts, as you know. The other thing is, I, I think people need to remember that I think there's this huge broker-dealer focus or dual registrant focus because um, because of Reg BI, right? But I think you need to remember the DOL, they don't limit that. So to the extent that you deal with subsidiaries that are banks, uh, insurance companies, insurance agencies, insurance intermediaries, those are all potentially subject to this regime as well. So I think you have to have 
it, it, it goes beyond the broker dealer. So you may have to be working with your fellow CCOs in other parts of the business as well. David, I can't thank you enough. This has been so beneficial. Really, really, really appreciate the time today. Again, I think you played the role of soothsayer pretty well there. So well, well, well done on your part. And, uh, and again, thank you for joining us today. You're welcome. Thanks for having me anytime. Our next installment in the series of final segments for the podcast is a feature we're calling What's On My Mind. In a tip of the cap to former Grouch-in-Chief and 60 Minutes reporter Andy Rooney, this segment will often include a brief editorial or nuanced take on a contemporary issue affecting the investment management industry. In today's segment, we're looking at the convoluted and confusing area of ESG disclosures. Does anybody really know where we're at on this? In asking this question, I am also swayed by some recent remarks from from SEC Commissioner Roisman. Quote, when an asset manager markets a fund as having an ESG strategy, it has an obligation to disclose material information about that fund to investors and potential investors. Additionally, it would make sense to me that asset managers who want to use these terms to name their funds or advertise their products should be required to explain to investors what they mean. How do the terms ESG, green, and sustainable relate to a fund's objectives, constraints, strategies, and the characteristics of its holdings? Are E and S and G weighted the same when selecting portfolio companies? Does the fund intend to subordinate the goal of achieving economic returns to non-pecuniary goals? And if so, to what extent? End quote. Mr. Voiceman asked some good questions that I'm not sure the industry is really ready to answer yet. And while I can certainly understand the extreme pressure the industry is placing on the SEC to try and standardize an ESG disclosure framework that would be both beneficial for investors, so they know what they're looking at, and for companies, so they know where the white lines are. As indicated by Mr. Voiceman, there are already great difficulties in trying to disclose investment strategies so that an investor can make an informed decision about whether a fund that claims to be an ESG fund is an ESG fund. And that's at a basic level, at a basic level, even before we've tried to standardize it. And it's not just Roisman. It's easy to understand why others at the SEC are pushing back on this as well. As Commissioner Peirce similarly points out in a recent speech at Harvard Law School, a prescriptive ESG framework runs counter to the principles-based disclosure framework and even industries that have embraced standardized ESG reporting have struggled. Ms. Purse goes on to say that even real estate, which is known for embracing ESG reporting, can't seem to apply a consistent framework. In 2019, for example, the top 100 REITs, uh, based on a percentage of equity market capitalization, only 69% aligned their reporting to the CDP, 53% to the GRESB, and 52% to the GRI. Not exactly uniform. Bottom line, ESG issues aren't going away anytime soon. And I get the chicken or the egg scenario we've got here. Nevertheless, I'm not sold that at this stage in the game, it would be truly beneficial to demand the SEC require a specific framework when so many companies, issuers, and investors are still expressing substantially different views on the subject. Perhaps the more that companies and issuers are thoughtful in connecting the E, the S, and the G to a particular product, fund, or strategy, and the more investors define their own predilections, the more a framework will emerge that will provide the SEC with a foundation 
on which to build some principles-based guardrails for use in the marketplace. Just a thought. And that will just about do it for today's episode. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Calfee and the National Society of Compliance Professionals, and extend a big thank you to our guest, David Kaleda, for coming on today's show. Please join us again next time on the Securities Compliance Podcast, where we help you put compliance in context. You can listen and subscribe to the show wherever you find your favorite podcasts, or go to complianceincontextpodcast.com to listen and learn more.